Hi, my name is Andy Chamberlain. I'm a writer and creative writing tutor, and you are listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. And welcome to episode 73 of the podcast. In this episode, we're going to make a start on a new dimension of the craft of creative writing, perhaps the most difficult and elusive of all the dimensions that we're going to be looking at. In the next few episodes of the podcast, we're going to be examining what good writing sounds like. We're going to look at what good writing means for all of us, and we're going to look at what good writing means for each of us as individuals. What I'm going to try and do over the next few podcasts can be summed up in two simple questions. What does my writing sound like and how can I make it sound better? And this is going to be quite an epic podcast because I want to cover a range of issues all in one go. That means that we're going to try and get to grips with some tricky concepts, specifically tone, style and voice. Now, there's a lot of confusion about those terms, and it's not surprising, really, because some people use them interchangeably. And if you go on the Internet, you'll find some people talk about style and voice as different things. Some people talk about them as the same things. Now, I want to cut through all that confusion. And to do that, I have two simple aims in mind. And those two aims are one to bring us all to the point where we understand what these terms mean, and I include myself in that group, and two, to help us all work out how we can apply these terms in a way which will improve our work. Now, the second point is at least as important as the first. Sure, I wanna work out good definitions for all these terms, but that's not enough. My aim is to explore how we can all become better writers by applying practical insights to this dimension of creative writing. And as ever, I'm gonna use a whole load of illustrations to show you what I'm talking about. So let's start with the first of those three terms and have a look at the word tone. Now, the tone of a piece of writing is like its overall mood. To understand the tone of a piece, we should ask ourselves questions like, what kind of emotion or mood is the writer evoking? What kind of emotion are they trying to create in the reader? What's the writer's attitude to the subject that they're writing about? Let's have a look at a couple of examples. First, I want to read you a short passage from the story, The School, by Donald Bartlemay. And the trees all died. They were orange trees. I don't know why they died, they just died. Something wrong with the soil possibly, or maybe the stuff we got from the nursery wasn't the best. We complained about it. So we've got 30 kids there. Each kid had his or her own little tree to plant. And we've got these 30 dead trees. All these kids looking at little brown sticks. It was depressing. Now in this piece, I think it's clear that the tone is sad and negative. The author achieves this by using a number of techniques. There is a blunt introductory sentence, which is simply, and the trees all died. That sets the tone literally from the start. There's a sense of helplessness in the passage. For example, where the narrator says, I don't know why they died, they just died. This emphasizes the futility of the situation. Now, the piece is also sad and depressing because we witness the disappointment of the children. It isn't just reported to us. Bartlemy uses the present tense briefly when he says, all these kids looking at these little brown sticks to place us as readers in the moment. He wants us to experience what those children are experiencing. Now, let's compare that passage to a different one. This is a short passage from Ernest Hemingway's story, A Clean, Well-Lighted Place. It was very late and everyone had left the cafe except an old man who sat in the shadow the leaves of the tree made against the electric light. 
In the daytime, the street was dusty, but at night the dew settled the dust and the old man liked to sit late because he was deaf. And now at night it was quiet and he felt the difference. Now in this passage, the author in a few words has managed to create a tone which is calm and peaceful. There is a gentle rhythm to what's going on here. How has he managed to do that? Well, first of all, he sets the environment immediately. He says it was very late. Everyone had left the cafe except an old man. And by implication, it's quiet. Everyone had left apart from this old man and he sits in a shadow of some leaves. There's no physical activity in this passage, but it's not passive. The man is doing what he wants to do but it's peaceful. If we look at some of the language that Hemingway uses, the dew settled the dust, the night was quiet. The author has also used the tone to tell us something about the character of this old man. The peacefulness of the tone informs the essence of his character. Now, tone is also a powerful tool for poets, and we can learn a lot as story writers from looking at poetry and discerning how the poet has distilled down the words to create a mood and a feeling. Now here's a classic example of this. These are the first few lines from John Keats's poem, Ode to Autumn. Season of mists and mellow fruitfulness, close bosom friend of the maturing sun, conspiring with him how to load and bless with fruit the vines that round the thatch eaves run, to bend with apples the mossed cottage trees and fill all fruit with ripeness to the core, to swell the gourd and plump the hazel shells with a sweet kernel, to set budding more and still more later flowers for the bees, until they think warm days will never cease, for summer has o'erbrimmed their clammy cells. I hope that you find that that first verse has given you a strong sense of the tone which Keats is trying to capture here, the heavy, lazy, brimming, plump days of summer. The tone of the language used makes a powerful impression on us. And I hope as well that you were able to discern the rhythm of that piece of poetry. And we're going to explore these things in a lot more detail in future episodes. But suffice it to say that rhythm and pacing, even in narrative prose, can help us to create setting and character. And as a good example of this, I would recommend that if you have an audible credit at all and you're with Audible, go and download a copy of Half Resurrection Blues by Daniel Jose Older. This is narrated by the author and he uses rhythm very effectively in the story to enhance the character and the setting and the plot. And within our work, with rhythm comes pace. Some scenes might lend themselves to a faster pace requiring shorter sentences or quick dialogue. Other scenes might be better served by longer sentences with a more detailed construction to slow the pace. We'll look at rhythm and pace in a lot more detail in a future episode. So to sum up, when we think about tone, the things to bear in mind are one, knowing what mood you're trying to create for your story, for your setting, and for the different scenes that you present. With this insight, you can think about the kinds of words and the kind of word structure that will create the mood that you require. And that leads us to our second point, which is thinking about what you want to achieve will lead you to think about the pace of your work. Your narrative can be structured in different ways depending on the pace that you want to achieve. Third thing, it's useful to think about how tone can inform character and how that can work together with mood and setting and scene. And fourthly, tone is also about the choice of words a writer uses, and this is often known as their diction. So for tone, the choice of words and pace and mood all come together. 
So now that we've established a little bit about what tone is, let's move on to a rather more slippery definition, and that is the difference between style and voice. Now, if you go and search on the internet, you will find a range of opinions on style and voice. Some people use the terms interchangeably, others insist on a distinction between the two, but the respective definitions can still be difficult to understand. Now, I believe that those who say that style and voice are different are actually correct. Style and voice are two different things, and if we're going to exploit both of them to improve our work, we need to understand what those differences are. So first of all, let's look at style. Now, I think the term style is best thought of as an impersonal thing. It's a term which describes a way of writing that might be particular to a journal or a newspaper, or maybe even a series of books, or perhaps even a genre or subgenre. It can be reflected in features like sentence length, casual or formal language, choices about tense, point of view and person. The Style Guide from The Economist, a weekly news and current affairs magazine, includes these pieces of advice. Do not be stuffy. Use the language of everyday speech, not that of spokesmen or lawyers or bureaucrats. So use let rather than permit, people rather than persons, buy rather than purchase, colleague rather than peer. Pomposity and long-windedness tend to obscure meaning or reveal a lack of it strip them away in favour of plain words. And don't be too didactic. If too many sentences begin with words like compare and consider and expect and imagine and look at, prepare for, and so on, readers will think they're reading a textbook. This may not be the way to persuade them to renew their subscriptions. Do your best to be lucid. Simple sentences help. Keep complicated constructions and gimmicks to a minimum. So a discussion about style leads us to thinking about things like clarity and brevity and precision. And style is connected with these things and is all about the business of writing effectively to create the type of prose that fulfills a purpose. And usually that's to convey meaning in the most effective way possible. In his essay, Politics and the English Language, Orwell outlined five rules for effective writing. And these were, Never use a metaphor, simile or other figure of speech which you are used to seeing in print. Never use a long word when a short word will do. If it's possible to cut a word out, always cut it out. Never use the passive when you can use the active. And never use a foreign phrase or scientific word or jargon word if you can think of an everyday English equivalent. Most writers can adapt the style of their writing they can develop different styles. And it's a positively good idea to try to develop your skills in this area so that you can write in certain ways and adopt different styles. Certainly anyone who wants to write for a journal or a publication or perhaps a blog will be encouraged to study and use the house style. And style can also apply to different genres of fiction. The style of a romance novel is likely to be very different from a hard military sci-fi novel or a cyberpunk novel. Now, as an example of different and contrasting styles, here are a couple of short passages from two very different books. The first is from G.K. Chesterton's Father Brown stories in a classic English detective genre. The girl uttered a startled, singular little cry. Everyone looked at her. Her figure was rigid as if paralysed. Only her face within its frame of faint brown hair was alive with the appalling surprise. She stood like one of a sudden lassoed and throttled. This man, said Mr. Gilder gravely, actually says that you were found grasping a knife, insensible, after the murder. He says the truth, answered Alice. The next fact of which they were conscious was that Patrick Royce strode with his great stooping head 
into their ring and uttered the singular words, Well, if I've got to go, I'll have a bit of pleasure first. His huge shoulder heaved and he sent an iron fist smash into Magnus's bland Mongolian visage, laying him on the lawn as flat as a starfish. Two or three of the police instantly put their hands on Royce, but to the rest it seemed as if all reason had broken up and the universe were turning into a brainless harlequinade. None of that, Mr Royce, Gilda had called out authoritatively. I shall arrest you for assault. Now compare the style of that work to this. This is a short passage from William Gibson's Neuromancer, which is a cyberpunk novel. Get some coffee in you. Look like you need it. She took off her black jacket, but Fletcher hung beneath her arm in a black nylon shoulder rig. She wore a sleeveless grey pullover with plain steel zips across each shoulder. Bulletproof, Case decided, slopping coffee into a bright red mug. His arms and legs felt like they were made out of wood. Case, he looked up, seeing the man for the first time. My name is Armitage. The dark robe was open to the waist, the broad chest hairless and muscular, the stomach flat and hard, blue eyes so pale they made Case think of bleach. Sun's up, Case. This is your lucky day, boy. Case whipped his arm sideways and the man easily ducked the scalding coffee. Brown stain running down the imitation rice paper wall. He saw the angular gold ring through the left lobe. Special forces, the man smiled. Get your coffee, Case, Molly said. You're okay, but you're not going anywhere till Armitage has had his say. She sat cross-legged on a silk futon and began to field strip the Fletcher without bothering to look at it. Twin mirrors tracking as he crossed to the table and refilled his cup. Now what we're seeing here are not just examples of different tone, but also different styles. The flat as a starfish simile from the Father Brown stories is not something that we're likely to see in William Gibson's Neuromancer. The language and dialogue are different between these two as well. The language of Neuromancer is more spare and more clipped. You won't find a grand old adverb like authoritatively in Neuromancer. Likewise, you won't find those stark progressive verb tenses in sentences like brown stain running down a rice paper wall and twin mirrors tracking as he crossed to the table and refilled his cup in the Father Brown narrative unless it's somebody actually speaking. Now both of these works share traits and features with other books from the same genre. They share a certain style with those other books and a writer can change their style and adapt it to the work they're doing. So for example, there's a distinct change of style between Ian MacDonald's Dervish House and Luna New Moon. And a change of style can also be a function of the length of work. If you're familiar with Brandon Sanderson's work, for example, you'll notice change of style between something like one of his 700-page Mistborn series books and his novella, The Emperor's Soul. It's worth paying attention to style, especially if we're concerned about the reception our work will get from particular readers. If you're writing for a particular journal or a in a certain genre or a certain length of work even, or perhaps for a blog or whatever it is, it's a very good idea to read examples of existing work so that you can pick up the sense of style that readers expect. This does not mean that you have to copy that style to the exclusion of all else, but you do have to have a good understanding of what the style is so that you can develop your voice within that. Learn the good habits of the craft to help you with style. The first words of the Economist style guide are these. The first requirement of the Economist is that it should be readily understandable. And that is a principle that serves all writers well. The style you write in should facilitate the reader's progression through and enjoyment of the story. 
style facilitates story. It should help to present your work in a way that is engaging and engrossing for the reader. Remember that most good editing involves taking words out of a piece rather than putting them in. So learn the merits within style of clarity, brevity and precision. Again, we'll look at these terms in one of the future podcasts. Now I've described style as impersonal and that's not because the style of a piece of work isn't personal in some way to you if you write it. After all, you've created it. But what I mean is that it doesn't reflect the purely unique way in which you write. Any writer can adopt a range of styles, but I believe that each writer only has one voice. I believe voice is personal and unique to the writer, and it's unique because it's an expression of who they are. So let's move on now and look at voice. What do we mean by voice, and how do we develop and use our voice in writing? So I believe that your voice as a writer is an expression of you, how you see the world, how you believe information and entertainment and meaning should be conveyed. Voice, or narrative voice as it's sometimes called, is unique to you. And this is a difficult concept because it's quite rare for somebody to know their narrative voice, how they naturally write immediately. That natural voice is there, it's there in all of us as writers, but it's smothered by other writing styles, other people's voices, the styles that we copy from the writers that we respect. The literary agent Rochelle Gardner describes voice like this. Your writer's voice is the expression of you on the page. And that's a good definition, I think. It's not you trying to set a tone or to write in a style, it's you on the page. Style and tone can be studied and copied and adapted for all kinds of purposes, but voice is the hardest thing of all because it can't be learnt, it can only be found, and once it's found, it has to be nurtured. And true voice is authentic and fearless. And it's that combination of authenticity and courage that will make your work very attractive to readers. I once asked Lee Harris, a senior editor at the publisher's tour, what he looked for in new writing that came across his desk. And without hesitation, he said, voice. The one thing I look for more than anything else in new writing is voice. Now this guy is an editor and he's looking for work and that should tell us how important voice is. So let's have a look at some examples of writers with a very distinctive voice. My aim here in reading you these two examples is not so that you go and copy them, it's so that you'll be encouraged to go and find your own voice. The first passage is from the writer Frank McCourt, and this is a passage from his book, Angela's Ashes. They dried me, they dressed me in my black velvet first communion suit with a little white frilly shirt, the short pants, the white stockings, the black patent leather shoes. Around my arm they tied a white satin bow, and on my lapel they pinned the sacred heart of Jesus, a picture with blood dripping from it, flames erupting all around it, and on top a nasty-looking crown of thorns. Come here till I comb your hair, said Grandma. Look at that mop, it won't lie down. You didn't get that hair from my side of the family. That's that North of Ireland hair you've got from your father. That's the kind of hair you see in Presbyterians. If your mother had married a proper, decent Limerick man, you wouldn't have this standing up North of Ireland Presbyterian hair. She spat twice on my head. Grandma, will you please stop spitting on my head? If you have anything to say, shut up. A little spit won't kill you. Come on, we'll be late for mass. We ran to church. My mother panted along just behind with Michael in her arms. We arrived at the church just in time to see the last of the boys leaving the altar rail where the priest stood with the chalice and the host glaring at me. Then he placed on my tongue the wafer, the body and blood of Jesus. At last, at last. It's on my tongue. I draw it back. It's stuck. 
I had God glued to the roof of my mouth. I could hear the master's voice. Don't let that host touch your teeth, for if you bite God in two, you'll roast in hell for eternity. I tried to get God down on with my tongue, but the priest hissed at me. Stop that clucking and get back to your seat. God was good. He melted and I swallowed him. And now at last I was a member of the true church, an official sinner. Now, commenting on the way he wrote this book, Frank McCall said this. After 20 pages of standard omniscient author, I wrote something that I thought was just a note to myself about sitting on a seesaw in a playground and I found my voice, the voice of a child. That was it. It carried me through to the end of the book. So in that moment, Frank McCourt found his voice. Now compare that to this passage written by Ernest Hemingway from his book, The Old Man and the Sea. When the boy came back, the old man was asleep in the chair and the sun was down. The boy took the old army blanket off the bed and spread it over the back of the chair and over the old man's shoulders. They were strange shoulders, still powerful although very old, and the neck was still strong too, and the creases did not show so much when the old man was asleep and his head fallen forward. His shirt had been patched so many times that it was like the sail, and the patches were faded to many different shades by the sun. The old man's head was very old though, and with his eyes closed there was no life in his face. The newspaper lay across his knees and the weight of his arm held it there in the evening breeze. He was barefooted. The boy left him there and when he came back the old man was still asleep. Wake up old man, the boy said and put his hand on one of the old man's knees. The old man opened his eyes and for a moment he was coming back from a long way away. Then he smiled. What have you got? he asked. Supper, said the boy. We're going to have supper. I'm not very hungry. Come on and eat. You can't fish and not eat. I have, the old man said, getting up and taking the newspaper and folding it. Then he started to fold the blanket. Keep that blanket around you, the boy said. You'll not fish without eating while I'm alive. Then live a long time and take care of yourself, the old man said. What are we eating? Black beans and rice, fried bananas and some stew. The boy had brought them in a two-decker metal container from the terrace. The two sets of knives and forks and spoons were in his pocket, with a paper napkin wrapped around each set. Who gave this to you? Martin, the owner. I must thank him. I thanked him already, the boy said. You don't need to thank him. I'll give him the belly meat off the, of a big fish, said the old man. Has he done this for us more than once? I think so. I must give him something more than the belly meat then. He is very thoughtful to us. He sent two beers. I like the beer in cans best. I know, but this is bottles, haughty beer, and I take back the bottles. That's very kind of you, the old man said. Shall we eat? I've been asking you to, the boy told him gently. I have not wished to open the container until you were ready. I'm ready now, the old man said. I only needed time to wash. Everything about Hemingway's style of writing, the tone, the pace, the diction, the voice, works together to produce prose that is calm and clear and precise and in the best sense simple. And interestingly, Hemingway was criticised by some of his peers for what seemed to them to be a very simplistic way of writing. In 1947, the distinguished author William Faulkner said this about Hemingway's work. He has no courage, has never crawled out on a limb. He has never been known to use a word that might cause the reader to check with a dictionary to see if it is properly used. Hemingway's response to this sort of criticism gives us an insight into what he thinks about his writing and therefore his voice. This is what he said. Poor Faulkner. Does he really think big emotions come from big words? He thinks I don't know the $10 words. I know them all right. But there are older and simpler and better words and those are the ones I use. 
Hemingway believed that the best way, the most honest way for him to express the emotions of his work were through what he called older and simpler and better words. This is what came from his heart. In the same way, what you write from your heart will show you your voice. Speaking on the Writing Excuses podcast, James A. Owen, the American comic book illustrator and writer, gave this advice about voice. Don't try too hard. Don't develop voice to impress someone else. Develop your own voice. It comes to you naturally. You have to almost look away and let it come. Be free to stop worrying about how to do it and tell the story that will excite you. Understand the techniques and tools and get them sorted. Then you can let your voice come. You have to be excited about the work and then get out of the way of yourself and let it go. Get past the techniques so that you can express the real self. Now, the interesting thing from these comments from me is this idea that as writers, we must be familiar enough with all of the techniques of creative writing so that we can almost forget about them and focus on our voice without having to worry about anything else. If you can drive a car or you can ride a bike or you've learned to swim, you'll know what he means. We pick up the basic techniques so that we can kind of forget about them and just get on with it. So how can we nurture our voice? Now, I've heard some writers say that it takes 10,000 hours of writing and a million words for a writer to discover their voice. I don't know if it has to take that long, but it has to take long enough for us to have mastered those basics of the craft and then be brave enough to write without worrying about what we're writing, who we're writing for, and to just let our voice come. So developing your voice, therefore, I think is based on these principles. First of all, it is worth developing your voice. It's worth taking the time and effort to do that, not least because editors will take an interest if you discover your voice because your work will be clear and authentic and better for it. Second thing, learn the techniques of creative writing well enough so that you can almost forget about them and get on with finding and using your voice. Third, nurture your voice. Don't study someone else. Don't try too hard. Just let it come. Fourth thing, try to understand the kind of writing voice that seems honest to you. And fifth thing, try to understand the kind of writing voice that excites you. So what have we covered in this episode? Well, quite a lot, actually. But I think it's right for us to look at all of these three areas, tone, style and voice together to try and untangle what each of them means and then to try and work out how to develop and exploit them for our work. So the main things that I want you to take away from this episode are these. So to achieve the right tone, we have thought about mood and trying to understand what kind of mood we want to create for the story, for the setting, for the scenes that we're working on. And the second thing with tone, when we're thinking about what we want to achieve, it's worth thinking about rhythm and pace in our work, something that we'll look at in more detail in future episodes. But for now, just be aware that pace and rhythm within tone are powerful tools to use in your work. Third thing, the tone of a passage can also complement character. Thinking about how tone can inform character is very useful because that tone will impact the perception of the reader and the way in which the character is presented. Fourth thing, tone is also about the choice of words that you use, and this is known as diction. So as you think about the mood that you're trying to create, as you think about the setting and the scene and the characters that you're working with, try and understand and identify the words that you would choose to reinforce and enhance that. So we've also talked about style and in connection with this we've said if you're writing for a particular journal or a genre or a certain length of work it's a good idea to read examples from that area so that you can understand what the style is. It doesn't mean you have to copy that style to the exclusion of everything else but it's a good idea to have it in your mind. Second thing, learn the good habits of style. Remember those first words from the Economist Style Guide. 
The first requirement of The Economist is that it should be readily understandable. And this is a principle that would serve us all as writers well. It doesn't matter whether we're writing fiction or non-fiction. The style you write in should facilitate the reader's progression through and the enjoyment of the story. Style facilitates the story that you're writing. It should help to present your work in a way that is compelling and engaging and enthralling to the reader. Remember also that good editing involves taking words out more than putting them in. So learn the merits of clarity, brevity and precision. Again, we'll cover that more in some future episodes. Finally, we've looked at the subject of voice and on this we've said these things. It's worth taking the time to discover your voice. It will make you a better writer and it will attract editors. Second thing, learn the techniques of the craft well enough so that you can forget about them and do the third thing, which is nurture your voice. Don't study someone else. Don't try and copy anyone. Don't try and impress anyone. Just let it come from within you. Fourth point, try to understand the kind of writing voice that seems honest to you. And fifth point, try and understand the kind of writing voice that excites you. So I think that's plenty for this episode. Today, I have quoted from a whole bunch of works and they are The School, a short story by Donald Barthelmey, A Clean, Well-Lighted Place by Ernest Hemingway, Ode to Autumn by John Keats, The Economist Star Guide from The Economist, Politics and the English Language, an essay by George Orwell, Neuromancer by William Gibson, published by Glantz, The Father Brown Mysteries by G.K. Chesterton, published by BBC Books, Angela's Ashes by Frank McCourt, published by Harper Perennial, The Old Man and the Sea by Ernest Hemingway, published by Arrow. I've also referred to or quoted from Rochelle Gardner, and you can find her work at rochellegardner.com. That's R-A-C-H-E-L-L-E-G-A-R-D-N-E-R.com. I've also quoted from William Faulkner and Ernest Hemingway and from James Owen speaking on the Writing Excuses podcast. So that's it for this episode. It's been a bit of an epic. I hope it's been useful to you. I'll get some show notes written up for Pinterest. We've got a group on Goodreads. Please go to goodreads.com and join us there. And you can go to my website. It's andrewjchamberlain.com. Drop me a line from there. I always like to hear from listeners on the podcast. That's it for now. So until next time, thank you again for listening. And goodbye.